Welcome to Cato Audio for October 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Daphne Viatar of Amnesty International details how her group counts casualties in war. We reach into the Cato archive for some thoughts from James Otteson on the power of saying no in the struggle for liberty. And conservative columnist George Will details some of the arguments he makes in his new book, The Conservative Sensibility. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Housing is of great concern uh, for many Americans, and uh, whether or not you can secure uh, quality, affordable housing near uh, a place where you work and uh, in a place where you would like to live has a lot of implications uh, for demographics, for the accumulation of wealth uh, among families. And uh, as we look at some of the data today, housing starts are at best sluggish. Our high right now is near the low of previous recessions. Uh, and there are a lot of policy reasons why that is the case. And talking to me about this today, Mike Tanner, senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He is author of The Inclusive Economy and director of Cato's California Project. It has a longer name, but I'll leave it to Mike to uh, detail that longer name. And Diego Zuluaga, a policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, has been looking into a lot of the uh, financial regulation that has related to uh, housing in the United States, particularly in Washington, D.C., a high cost of living area, let me tell you. So uh, to begin here, uh, as, we, as we think about housing, uh, Mike, what are the, the big picture items that are, uh, I, don't, I don't, you know, the government has these various roles that both encourage and discourage uh, housing construction. What are the big top line things that we ought to think about when we think about uh, housing construction and securing quality affordable housing for people? Well, we need to look particularly at supply and at cost, and the two are related. If you have a demand for housing, which we do in this country, and you have an undersupply, it drives up the cost of housing for people. And too often, that lack of supply is simply artificial. It is caused by government policies that make it very difficult to build. Uh, this is a particular problem for low-income people. Uh, poor people, on average, spend about 40% of their income on housing, which is a huge hit if you don't have a great deal of income. And second, it sort of ghettoizes the poor. It locks them into areas uh, because they can't move to areas that might have lower crime rates or better jobs or better schools. They essentially are prisoners of low-rent areas. I would add that uh, one, of, in addition to nationwide supply, one of the things that we run up against in the United States a lot is that supply is particularly constrained in the places where there is a lot of economic opportunity and a lot of economic productivity. So the Economist uh, recently cited an academic estimate that if there was much greater flexibility for people to move, meaning that they would have somewhere to move to that they could afford in the high productivity places, you could increase output in the United States by as much as 50%. I mean, even even if that is a bit of an overestimate, because when you get more labor to move into an area, they're not as productive as the existing labor. Even then, you know, if we take 50% as an upper bound, that's a major, major economic transformation from what we have today. Now, uh, Ed Glazer, uh, the economist at Harvard, who I've had recently, well, not recently, it was a while back on the on the Cato Daily podcast, we, t we talked a lot about uh, housing and in, in terms of policies at the local level, uh, and the state level, do we have an, an idea of how much money we're 
essentially leaving on the table in economic productivity just by virtue of the fact that you know moderate income people have to live very far from work. That's a lot of uh, lost time that those people could either be uh, productive or uh, spending time with their families and that sort of thing. Well, I can't put a dollar amount to it, but I can suggest that it is bad for the economy. It's bad for the environment. Uh, people who have to spend two hours or two and a half hours in a car each day, uh, that's, that's certainly a pollution problem. Uh, it's bad for low-income people. Uh, most of these policies are counterproductive, and we're actually seeing anti-growth activists beginning to argue the, on the basis of the fact that if you have too many jobs in an area, that drives up housing costs, and therefore we should reduce the number of jobs coming to, say, a place like San Francisco or Palo Alto. The U.S. GDP right now is about $20 trillion. Um, so I think you, we can safely say that the annual cost of restrictions on house building, of additional commuting times, of um, you know economic opportunities that simply don't take place because you have a missing market as a result of people not being able to move as much as they could is easily in the hundreds of billions of dollars. In terms of mortgages outstanding, just the financial cost of paying for um, living and owning, living in and owning a home, uh, that's uh, over ten trillion dollars. Uh, so I mean, you know, any marginal change in how much is available, which would have an impact on price, is going to have a very sizable economic effects just because of how huge this this part of the American economy is. Now, Mike, you've, uh, you've are heading our California project. That, of course, is not the title, but it's the shorthand that we use around here in the office. What uh, what is that project aimed at? And how does housing play into that? Sure. It's the California Project on Poverty and Inequality, to be precise. We're looking at the problems that California has in an area that has uh, economic growth and great vast areas of wealth uh, and extensive social welfare programs, also has the highest poverty rate in the nation. And housing costs are a significant contributor to, to that, uh, as I already mentioned. And California has some of the worst uh, policies in the nation when it comes to building low-cost housing. Ed Glazer, as you mentioned, suggests that zoning in California adds as much as 50% to the cost of housing in that state. And that might be an underestimate given some of the other policies that, that are going on there. And uh, because uh, California has such huge metropolitan areas, uh, LA and San Francisco, to name two of them, um, how does the federal role, what does the federal government do with respect to housing in major metropolitan areas? Well, the federal government certainly subsidizes low-income housing, uh, although that is restricted in California. There is actually a provision in the California state constitution that says if housing is subsidized, uh, it must be subject to a citywide vote before you can build any new uh, subsidized housing. So it is seldom built in wealthier communities. Uh, in addition to that, of course, the, we sort of chase our tail that as housing costs go up, we provide more subsidies to pay for the higher rents, uh, which really encourages landlords to raise uh, the rents still more and get higher subsidies. A lot of the listeners will know that the housing market or the housing finance in the United States is dominated by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which acquire mortgages from banks and other lenders. And those are right now under government conservatorship, but uh, forever since they've played a role in the housing market, the federal government has, in various different ways, uh, encouraged demand for housing finance, for people to borrow for mortgages, whether by making 
um, low equity mortgages available or high cost mortgages, meaning people uh, fork out a, he- uh, a large share of their uh, of their income in monthly payments and so on. Uh, so it's interesting because, you know, hearing Mike, uh, at the state and local level, you have supply restricting policies and at the federal level, demand boosting policies so that you end up with very significant impacts on costs because, you know, with restricted supply, all that additional credit does is increase prices. The way housing functions, it's not like uh, going to a deli and buying a sandwich. When you buy a house, this is a long-term investment. A lot of the policies that have been uh, implemented by the feds and states, I'm thinking about, uh, and local governments, I'm thinking about minimum lot sizes. I'm thinking about uh, the inability to build up in a lot of areas that uh, where you might want to build up. These take a long time to sort of filter through. Like there's not an immediate response that you can get from the housing market that you could get in other markets. Is that is that fair to say? I think there are frictions. Yeah, I think the the political process is dominated by homeowners, if nothing else, because they have a much higher rate of permanency and a much greater stake in the community. So that even things that would overall benefit the local economy over time uh, are not decided on certainly not in a timely fashion as a result of the fact that homeowners are much more involved than renters or potential renters or people who would otherwise move in. Yeah, but what I'm referring to is just the response time of the market itself to even if we adopted your dream set of policies, it would take years for those policies to begin to show up. Is that Well, is that to, right? to build new housing is a time-consuming and costly project. So it's certainly not something that's going to take place overnight. But we certainly can get started. I mean, we mentioned earlier California, uh, about between 50 and 75% of all available residential land is zoned for single-family occupancy only. So you can't build uh, houses or multifamily units in these areas. I mean, essentially, we subsidize home ownership, but we discourage uh, dense uh, multifamily housing uh, in this country, which is sort of uh, 1950s backwards. I would say that perhaps we're exaggerating a bit how long it would take for okay. prices for prices to come down if we were to significantly liberalize in the way that I think yeah. Mike and I would like the market, particularly in California, but you know everywhere in, in in America, to go. Just because the moment you liberalize, you create a massive incentive for a raise to lower prices, and whoever gets there first is going to reap the most benefits, right? Because it, the, the prices, whatever you earn, is going to be the difference between what the market will pay at any point in time and what it requires at the end of the process, so to speak, right? So the earlier you get there, the earlier you supply the additional units, the the greater the margin you will make, other things equal. So I, I think, you know, the experience across markets when when we liberalize is that things, is that prices come down very quickly. Erland liberalization, you would think that capital expenditure in, um, in airlines would have taken a long time, you know, for liberalization to reflect, uh, you know, the, the the new state of the market after 1979. In fact, prices started to come down very quickly after that. So, the market responds. Yeah, we'd have to do a number of reforms. You'd have to move uh, California, for example, just to, to cite that one example. Uh, is not a buy right state, which means it's a secondary review state, which means even after you get all your permits, get everything in place, you still have to then go to the board of supervisors and hold public hearings and all these things which drag out the process. If you were to move to a more ministerial system, uh, you could cut the time needed to get approved the approval on these projects uh, significantly, and that would help a great deal. Now, uh, 
when I was speaking with uh, Emily Hamilton at the Mercatus Center a while back on on some of the policies that have been adopted, she had good things to say about uh, Housing and Urban Development Director Ben Carson's uh, plan to turn back rules for uh, the Obama era rules with respect to affirmatively furthering fair housing. Say that three times fast. Um, and she noted that it's it's very similar to a proposal from Cory Booker, who is one of the Democrats uh, running for president. Any thoughts on essentially what they're proposing? Yeah, this is a good proposal by Secretary Carson in which essentially he wants to tie federal aid to changes in local policies that discourage housing. So essentially, unless you made some reforms in your zoning laws or your fee structure or things of that nature, you couldn't count on the federal government to bail you out when your housing prices went up. Uh, Cory Booker has who got experience in, in Newark in an urban environment, understands a little bit about housing is is moving down that line. Uh, it's kind of a stark contrast to say Kamala Harris, whose proposal is essentially to simply subsidize housing for uh, middle-income individuals. I, I don't know that specific policy, but on the financial side, I can tell you that um, Secretary Carson's uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, has an administration within it called the Federal Housing Administration that uh, ensures and subsidizes home ownership by low-income uh, people. And in the context of supply-side restrictions, what that has led to is loans being made available on an increasingly risky basis, in an increasingly costly basis, uh, in places where which could benefit much more from increasing supply. Um, I th th there are moves at the FHA now to restrict the availability of that ca kind of high cost, high risk credit. Uh, but in that context, I think this proposal would be welcome. But I would look at uh, financial aid as well. Yeah. So uh, I want to throw out a uh, outside the box proposal. This is from Glenn Weil, who's one of the authors of the book Radical Markets. And he suggests this more broadly, but I can think it of it being more most applicable to housing and that is the idea that uh, let's say you own your home you declare a value of that home and that is the tax basis on which you pay uh, you know some some property taxes on that home the flip side of that is that that declared value of your home is also a sale price that you must accept if offered that uh, amount of money for it. Essentially, it's sort of a hyper capitalism where pretty much all property is on sale at all times. Well, it might be interesting in, in terms of the way housing uh, taxation works. Essentially, more housing, more residents are a cost to cities uh, they, because they consume services. Whereas shoppers or people who come in, tourists or people who come into your city and then go home for the night someplace else, uh, generally are an economic gain to the city. So cities actually want to encourage commercial development and discourage residential development. Uh, so the, you know, you've got to find some way around the uh, that that problem that essentially if taxes are too high, they discourage people from the city. If they're too low, they are a net loss for the city. I like uh, Glenn Wiles' proposal a lot. I've actually uh, read Radical Markets and uh, you know read it in some detail. The only thing that left me slightly mystified is they come up with this arrangement because it's it's efficient in the sense that you have neither an incentive to overestimate the value of your home nor to underestimate it because if you overestimate, you pay a lot in tax. If you underestimate it, someone will snatch it away from you. So you will come to the optimal level in some sort of way. But then they say the tax rate has to be 7%. 
I believe it is. And they don't quite go into detail why it is 7%. And that seems to be quite crucial, right? If you're determining the optimal rate of taxation of property, if it's going to be a major source of government revenue, you better get it right. right. And, and, they and, talk, and it's a transaction cost, right? The tax? Well, absolutely. It, it is a transaction cost, but it also affects the turnover of property and how efficiently property is allocated over time, right? And who buys it? Because if if this is an, an annual cost, even if your valuation, I mean, the price will change on the basis of the tax rate, uh, but it doesn't make the system efficient unless you have good evidence for why that would be the, the optimal rate. And I didn't quite see that. Uh, so I think in principle, it makes, um, it makes a lot of sense. I just worry about other frictions and exemptions that would be created inevitably and, you know, how nonprofits would be treated, how um, low-income housing would be treated and so on. Elderly homeowners would be probably tr- want to be treated differently and for, for good reason, quite possibly. In government buildings. I mean, imagine in Washington, D.C., if the government had to explicitly declare a price for a lot of the space that it has in downtown DC a lot of it a lot of which is historical housing that you know a lot of people would be very happy to own themselves and could perhaps uh, one might say be more productively allocated to other uses uh, that would be interesting to see it also has to do with where the taxes uh, are being allocated to after you pay them uh, one of the issues in California with proposition 13 was that there had been a statewide decision that school taxes, which was the primary purpose for which property taxes were levied, uh, were going to be allocated on a statewide basis. So you were no longer paying for your local community school. You were now paying for schools in in other communities. And that was a particular driving force behind this uh, limitation on on local taxes. So- Diego, did you want to? Just one comment I wanted to make is that a, a paper, a very interesting paper came out recently from the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, which looks at gentrification. And uh, I've written some about the impact that certain federal government interventions have on gentrification. But what they find is that gentrification has all manner of really good outcomes for lo- existing low-income residents of the areas that become gentrified because schools get better with more funding, there's more economic activity, uh, crime rates go down, various good outcomes, right? Uh, diversity in neighborhoods is good for for people's outcomes and so on. Um, however, they do say that the pretty much the only downside of gentrification, which is the displacement of low-income renters primarily, only comes when you have supply-side restrictions. So that the low, the relatively small uh, metropolitan areas that they look at, where there isn't as much of a barrier to supply, they have almost universally good outcomes. And it's places like San Francisco, LA, New York, uh, the DC area that have seen some negative displacement. So with respect to, you say, California has terrible housing policies. California has the highest poverty rate in the United States and California has a massive homeless population. 23% of all homeless people in the United States reside in California. I guess if reside can be the the proper term. I mean, you have cities like San Francisco with 35,000 homeless people in a city of 600 to 800,000 people. Uh, this this is an enormous problem. And about two thirds of them are people who actually fall from you know, basically living in an apartment to the street because of the lack of affordable housing. About a third are people you'd expect to be homeless. They have drug problems, alcohol problems, they're mentally ill, the typical uh, what we think of when we think of the homeless. But about two-thirds are people who were in an apartment, they lost that apartment because they lost their job or they got sick or something happened and they couldn't find affordable housing elsewhere. So you fall directly to the street. That's a huge problem. It's a a huge problem uh, to move from 
being housed to unhoused in one fell swoop because of brute luck. And we have now have cases where typhus is breaking out in the homeless population in LA, for example. They're, they're worried about the outbreaks of cholera. I mean, we are talking about major problems uh, in, the, in these California cities. Uh, Diego, you mentioned uh, you know, barriers to uh, creation of new housing. There, uh, in the 2017 tax bill, there were opportunity zones. This was something I've spoken with uh, not too recently, but recently with uh, Chris Edwards here at Cato. Um, in general, that policy essentially seems to carve out an area for special tax breaks with specific respect to housing. That's right. Uh, the idea is that as an investor, you get a capital gains tax exemption from any earnings you may have had on your investments if you reinvest that money into specific areas designated by the government in agreement with the states. Uh, I have a lot of concerns about opportunity zones, not least the fact that a lot of the gain will be capitalized into land prices because of the tax exemption when they're, um, when they're decided, when the, the places are allocated. The other thing is that we have some evidence already there was an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal this weekend uh, pointing out that um, certain local governments and state governments are using uh, areas with high student populations or otherwise people who don't make any income uh, to take advantage of the opportunity zone designation, which is income-based for areas that are perfectly prosperous. So for example, Chapel Hill in North Carolina is one of the areas that apparently has been designated an opportunity zone, which has no need for uh, economic revitalization encouraged by public policy. Okay, so, so on paper, this looks like a depressed area, but exactly. in fact, it's just young people who don't have a lot of money. Exactly. And these are investment plans that were happening anyway. And it's just that these people saw a way to cheapen their cost of capital and more easily attract uh, investment for high cost buildings. And they have taken full advantage of it. So it's a it's a windfall. It's a net windfall for them. It's my understanding that uh, a lot of the, you say that the benefits are capitalized into the cost of housing. And so the only real beneficiaries are incumbent homeowners there, right? Yes, it's a bit of an arbitrage play, isn't it? It's sort of like you find out the uh, the, the the tax cut or the, 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 the jobs that the tax plan came through in 2017, and you look at the areas that might be designated, you buy land in a few, and uh, on the basis that some of them will be designated opportunity zones, and you capitalize the windfall. It's actually the landowner who gets the, who gets the benefit. All right. So uh, I want to talk about some slightly less comfortable policies uh, with respect to uh, housing and libertarians. And this is one that is popular among the sort of market urbanists, which is let's take all zoning and move it from, let's say, Louisville, Kentucky, and move it to the capital, which is Frankfurt, Kentucky, and let those decisions flow uh, out of the state capital. NIMBYs, the not in my backyard folks, suddenly find themselves competing with a lot of other interests when it comes to uh, setting zoning policies. Is that a net win for uh, the liberty of people to do what they want? Well, I, I think we do uh, want to preempt to some degree local uh, control over zoning because it is actually an infringement on people's individual property rights. 
you know, if I have property and I want to build a multifamily unit on that, that should be my right. Uh, we do allow the government to preempt local uh, preemption of, of individual rights. We would not allow a local government to control firearms or free speech or freedom of religion. And uh, what I do with my property should be treated the same way. And so it, practically what you're saying is that by moving that decision from any given metro to the state capital, it is more likely that you'll be able to make use of your property in a way you see fit uh, rather than less likely. Is, do you agree with that, Diego? I would agree with it. I think in a way it sort of moves decision making from the political sphere to the economic sphere. Because if you assume that state capitals will be less subject to capture by vested interests than, than, uh, than local government will be, then suddenly the decision becomes about what is the most productive use of land, who is willing to pay the highest price. And if I don't want you to build a massive new high rise next to my home, I'll force you to, or I'll force you, I'll, I'll ask you to accept a compensation payment uh, from me. Whereas if the decision is made at the local level, I have a much easier time going to my local councillor and uh, and, and uh, influencing them on that basis. So it's, it's more economically efficient. I, I get why libertarians are uncomfortable to the extent that we don't want to centralize decision making uh, at, in, dist in capitals that are distant from where the affected people live. But in banking, we have this all the time. The only reason we have branching now in the United States, which has been very beneficial and has reduced systemic risk, is that the federal government liberalized it because a lot of states were captured by the existing banking interests and they were not interested at all in having greater competition. So sometimes these things on net can be beneficial. And you can buy, there are many ways to structure easements that a community could uh, pool together their resources and purchase an easement and say, we don't want this kind of development on this property. So we go to the current landowner and he gets a, a windfall for essentially not building anything there. That's right. Sure. And we should recognize that a lot of these local restrictions are racially based or class based. They are, I mean, essentially communities don't necessarily want low income people moving into their community and so on. And, uh, and we should uh, you know, be protecting the vulnerable communities where possible. All right. We had a financial crisis a while back. I don't know if you heard. Um, and there were some lessons that uh, we probably ought to have taken from uh, that financial crisis, which uh, started in the housing market and, and spread to uh, the broader economy. So what are the big lessons that, as a practical matter, we have learned, whether or not those are good lessons uh, to have learned? Diego? I would say... Two main lessons that we, I think we have learned, but not many people have internalized just yet, is that home ownership is not a substitute for economic well-being or financial security. And also that extending mortgage credit to people is not even a proxy for home ownership either. So what happened in the run-up to 2008 is that you had a lot of people who on paper owned their homes, but in fact had very little equity in the home, could barely afford the payments. And the only reason they got the mortgage is because the lender expected that the market would continue to go up. So even if the borrower um, you know, didn't deliver, the house could be sold for more than it had been purchased for. Obviously, for the last few buyers over 2005, 06, 07, that didn't turn out uh, to be the case. But the additional lesson is that in the United States long term, we have had a home ownership rate of around 63, 64, 65%. This is since the 1940s, by the way. 
It went up slightly to 69 um, before the financial crisis. As I say, these were paper homeowners. They weren't real homeowners because they had no financial security or stability uh, in the home. But we've also seen throughout that time changes in the cost of living that genuinely affect people's economic well-being. So instead of focusing on home ownership and making credit often unsustainable credit and government subsidized credit more available, what we should look at is how do we lower the, cro- the cost of living across the board so that even people on low incomes can, whether they rent or own, uh, not fork out more than 30%, say, of their gross income in rent or, or mortgage payments. Yeah, I think it shows the lack of flexibility and the the slow turnaround of government policy that we're still kind of wedded to a policy that was something that was 20 or 30 years ago where everybody owned their own home and their little plot of land in the, in the suburbs. And increasingly, uh, things are reversing now. People are reurbanizing, moving back to the city. We're trying to cut down on the, the long commutes. We're trying to build, change policies that, and we still have a policy that sort of subsidizes people to live two hours from home uh, or two hours from their job somewhere and drive their car in, into the office every day. That's not necessarily where we want to be. Okay. Um, as we uh, close out this discussion, what are some big picture uh, and maybe some some smaller underappreciated policy changes that uh, are gettable that uh, you think would have an outsized impact on the ability of people to secure good housing? Well, I think some things we don't even necessarily think about as affecting housing do. For example, tariffs uh, added to lumber and uh, steel and, and things of that nature have a significant impact on the cost of housing. Uh, there was some information out the other day that suggested that uh, the tariffs that we've added cost about twenty to thirty thousand dollars on the cost of a new a new house. Uh, you know, all these sort of things have a very regressive impact uh, on the people who can afford at least. There were a lot of uh, financial regulatory interventions that individually look quite small and like they couldn't have much of an impact on price, but overall they really boost demand and in a context of uh, little new supply and and zoning restrictions, they can be harmful. So for example, the Community Reinvestment Act, um, I found that in the DC area has accelerated, seems to have accelerated the displacement of minorities in the areas that have gentrified. And these are particularly minority uh, renters. Then some exemptions that have been put into place believe it or not, for Fannie and Freddie to exempt them from consumer protection measures implemented after uh, 2008, uh, those have led to a greater ability to issue riskier loans. And that in turn seems to have had an outsized impact on lower priced homes. So the homes that for which people uh, on low incomes typically apply. Uh, so a lot of these things individually, you add them up and they have a sizable impact on, on demand. There are some massive uh, effects that Uh, not having a steady supply of quality, affordable housing for uh, people in the United States. In terms of birth rates in the United States, we are well below replacement rate here uh, in the US. That has dramatic uh, implications for social insurance programs, for the future of the US economy that, as I understand it, uh, can't be entirely replaced just by importing a bunch of people from other countries. Well, of course, the the, uh, immigration would help. But you're absolutely right. There are a number of studies out there that show that people have fewer children than they say they want to have, that the actual fertility rate is less than the uh, reported desired fertility rate. 
Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for this, but one is the inability to move to a larger housing. If you're in a one-room, one-bedroom apartment and you want to have a child, you need to be able to find a two-bedroom apartment uh, or a house. Uh, and if we drive up the cost of that, you are likely to delay having children until you can afford it. The longer you delay having children, the fewer children you'll have. I want to jump in here and say, try finding in a mid-sized metropolitan area in the United States, a three-bedroom apartment. It's difficult. Especially an affordable one. The the mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, somewhat wrongheadedly said that, quote, there's enough money, it's just in the wrong hands. And I would paraphrase that to say that when we have discussions about productivity and, and, and US economic growth, there's enough talent, it's just in the wrong places uh, in a lot of cases. And what you want to do is make it easier for people to move and do what they do best, what they're trained to do in the new locations. And a lot of that has to do with housing, not all of it. Obviously, there's occupational licensing, there are other cost of living issues, uh, there are um, this childcare, which also is related to land use uh, in a way. But a lot of those drivers would be very significantly aided by um, building the, the liberalization of building restrictions. And, and I think the figures suggest that we can have massive economic transformation as a result. Yeah, when we talk about zoning, let's not forget occupational zoning as well, which is another cost to the economy. It's not just residential zoning, it's also the inability to sell, you know, uh flowers from your living room or your, to bake uh, goods in your kitchen and sell them. All right. So we're going to close it out there. Uh, Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. You can see a lot of his work, especially on the D.C. housing market and gentrification at Cato.org. And Mike Tanner, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, the director of Cato's new California project and author of The Inclusive Economy. You can uh, follow up on both of those at our website, Cato.org. If we are to count the costs and benefits of war, the human cost should be front and center. And yet it's very difficult for the federal government to account for those it has killed. At a Cato Institute event in September, Daphne Iviatar of Amnesty International detailed how that group documents civilian casualties. I work for Amnesty International, and really what Amnesty does, we don't do the kind of big picture assessments of how many people overall have died in a particular conflict, although we, we follow what all of these different assessments are. But what, our, what we do, what we really specialize in, is going in after a conflict and looking at what's the impact on the ground in particular places. So we can't do it everywhere. You know, we, we have offices all over the world, but we, don't, we have a relatively small research staff. But they're extremely professional and extremely rigorous in the way that they do these assessments. So for example, um, after a four-month assault that the US-led coalition on Raqqa in Syria, and this was to get rid of the Islamic State, which was holding Raqqa at the time, we went in, we had researchers go in and start interviewing people and going to the sites of the strikes and looking at satellite photos and doing an enormous amount of research. And ultimately, we spent about two years researching this and also partnered with the group Air Wars, which does do that kind of macro analysis of how many people overall have been killed. We, can, we were able to document about 1,600 civilian casualties just from that one 
assault in a four-month period in 2017. And what we do, and I guess one of the things that I think is really important and that generally is missing from the discussion of civilian casualties and the way that the US government assesses civilian casualties is we go in and interview people. We look and see who was killed. Because a lot of the, the wars these days are from the air. I mean, there's also, there was also a ton of artillery used in Syria, more than, than the Marines had used since Vietnam was one of, the, one of the things that they said. So it was an, a huge assault. It was what they called a war of annihilation. That was what General Mattis termed it. Um, and they were able to get IS out of Raqqa at that time, although certainly not destroying the organization. But the consequences for civilians were enormous. And so we documented that in all different ways. We have an online uh, site that shows lots of firsthand video from the scene, interviews with people who were victims, who lost family members. We were able to identify the names of, I think, 647 individuals killed, all civilians. Um, so it's a, it's a massive effort. We can't do it everywhere. We've done a, a comparable project in Somalia, but on a much smaller scale due to, it, there's a, it's a smaller war there, and there, it was more difficult to go in there for security reasons. But that's how Amnesty International operates. So we don't make estimates, we verify. We go in, we find evidence, and we verify, and we present it to the US military. And then they sometimes respond, and they sometimes don't. I think a really important point is that the US military doesn't do that, right? They, they don't go in and do interviews and go back to strike sites and ask people who lived here, who was killed. They generally look at aerial footage and they rely on intelligence sources, none of which they'll reveal, and a potentially questionable reliability since we often don't have troops on the ground in these places or we have very few troops on the ground. And our partners in these places might not always be the most reliable or might have their own motives. So one of the things that we've been really trying to push the military to do is to actually go in after you've conducted a major assault and you've been bombing an area for a while or, and using massive artillery, go in afterwards and find out who was killed. Who were these people? And what we're getting instead are these estimates from the military that um, you know, a few hundred civilians maybe are killed. I, I think they acknowledged 159 civilians killed in Raqqa. Well, we found 1,600. There's a big difference there. And one reason they're not finding it is because they're not really looking for it. And while they're congressionally mandated to report on this, they get to choose how they report on it. And the mission is to annihilate the Islamic State. It's not to protect civilians. It's not to help the city uh, recover from the assault. It's not to help Syria develop. It's nothing like that. It's to kill the enemy. It's the lethality. They're trying to increase their lethality to kill an enemy. It's completely understandable. That's the military's role. But I think what's neglected is how many civilians are suffering in the process. And then also, what are the larger consequences of that? When you've killed massive numbers of civilians, and in Raqqa, for example, destroyed 80% of the city, destroyed most of the infrastructure, destroyed people's livelihood and where they live and their families. I mean, what are you leaving behind? And, and what's likely to come of that? And is that really making us safer? So I'm going over my five minutes. But that's sort of how Amnesty looks at it. I mean, we really focus on documenting very specific cases. We have a ton of information on our website, uh, on reports. Um, yeah, so I'll, and I'll leave it at that. And in terms of how I came to doing this, I just, I'm from New York. Um, 
so 9-11 was a huge event for me and for everyone I know, you know, many people I know saw the towers fall. Um, it was a devastating thing, but I think we never thought that 18 years later, we would still be at war over that in countries that had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks and that we would have killed hundreds of thousands more people to address a problem that we still haven't really addressed. In the long history of the ebb and flow of human liberty, some examples stand out. We reached into the Cato Archive for this piece from Jim Otteson of Wake Forest University. He offered some of those all-important examples at Cato Club 200 in 2017. We tend to think that at the heart of liberty lies the ability to do what we want. Now, of course, that's limited by the similar freedom of others, but the idea is that liberty is about having the power to say yes. I'd like to suggest, however, that it is in fact the authority to say no that most powerfully exemplifies our moral agency. And it is when we, like freeborn John, refuse to bow that we assume our place as free, equal, and beautiful moral agents. Indeed, human liberty has historically developed not gradually, I would suggest, but by great leaps. And in each of the great cases, it has been by some people, often at first just one person, saying, no. No, I will not compromise what I believe. No, I will not acknowledge your authority over me. No, I will not accept your interpretation of my duty to God. No, you do not rule me. No, I am not your property. No, I am not less than human. No, your moral agency is not inherently superior to mine. No, I will not work for you. No, I will not pay your tributes. No, I will not marry you. No, I will not let you invade my privacy. No, I am not a second-class citizen. On the opposite side of this is the shameful and ugly fact that most of human history has been characterized by our relentless attempts to control one another. My God, are we meddling busybodies, aren't we? <laughs> Cast your mind's eye back over human history. How much of it is marked by the ugliness of one group of people trying to mind, control, repress, redirect, manage, reform, re-educate, restrain, command, rule, dominate, bully, browbeat, humiliate, superintend, engineer, organize, supervise, govern, or nudge others? Yet almost all of the great and shining moments of human history are when someone stands up and says, no, you may have the power to coerce me, but I do not recognize your moral authority to do so. Now today, our self-anointed superiors often justify their interposition into our lives on the grounds that they know what choices we should make to make our lives better. These Latter-day Puritans say, don't worry, we're here to help you. If we know that smoking and eating donuts and drinking 20-ounce sodas and starting taxi companies and serving the homeless your homemade food and braiding hair without a license and using an incandescent light bulb and not recycling and listening to an immoral speaker and reading Ayn Rand and Adam Smith and Reason Magazine and on and on and on and endlessly on. If we know all of these things are bad, it would be wrong not to intervene, right? Wrong. On the contrary, it is precisely this paternalistic meddling that shows others 
a profound, immoral, and I would argue ugly disrespect. Where it says, we do not believe you are competent to lead your life properly, so we shall undertake to do it for you. Now that may be appropriate for children or for the mentally infirm, may be appropriate for zoo animals. It is an unacceptable imposition on the equal moral agency of adults. Ladies and gentlemen, I submit to you that having a person in government serving as a regulation czar is an affront to everything the long and proud and beautiful history of liberty stands for. It is to our shame that we tolerate it. Now, what exactly is this conception of moral agency? I could say a little bit more about it, but I won't say very much. Classically understood, I think it's a conception of humanity that conceives of human beings as being these two, as comprising these two things, autonomy and independent judgment. It's first, possessing the power of choosing otherwise. That's what I mean by autonomy. What did you wear today? What did you eat today? To whose emails did you respond and to whose did you not respond? Did you get married? Did you not get married? Who did you date? In all of these cases and the countless other decisions that you make from small to large, you could have chosen otherwise. That doesn't mean that there wouldn't have been costs involved. Of course, there are costs and there are influences. But in every case, you could have chosen otherwise. And that's what we mean by autonomy. And I call this autonomy following Immanuel Kant. That's why I have that picture of him there. And that's precisely what gives human beings dignity. It's what elevates their status above that of non-human animals and inanimate objects. By making choices, one takes ownership of one's life. And one comes, therefore, to take responsibility for it. You make poor choices, you, are held, you should be held accountable for those choices in just the same way that, if you, that you should be rewarded if you make good choices. Now, the ability to choose otherwise logically implies the ability to say no to any proposal, and saying no is indeed perhaps, as I have suggested, the most exemplary act through which human beings can demonstrate their moral agency. Others may have power over us through superior force or threats of force, but when we can say no, we demonstrate our moral equality to those who would command, direct, or nudge us. By contrast, if I don't allow you to say no to my proposal, if I don't allow you to decline to be directed or regulated or restricted, if I don't allow you to disobey my commands or my request for information about you, my tracking of your movements, my listening to your phone calls, reading your emails, my search of your person and property. In all of these cases, my disallowance of your ability to say no compromises your moral authority. It makes your moral agency less efficacious than mine, and indeed it subordinates it to mine. It creates a relationship resembling that of master and servant, not of peer and peer. But that is unbefitting a free person, and it is disallowed by a principle of equal moral agency. So a crucial aspect of our freedom, I would like to argue, is therefore the authority to say no. Saying no is often quite difficult. Others can be persuasive, as anybody who's been in contact with a pushy salesman or an authoritarian officer of the public or bullies or other these types that try to use intimidation to get what they want. TSA agent that I, one of them that I encountered today asked me if she, if it would be all right if I, if she searched my bag. I love it when they say, have a nice day as if there's some choice, no choice. 
By the way, uh, when I was coming back from China in Detroit, a t TSA agent said to me, they searched my bag because I had a bunch of books in one of my bags. And she searched it. And I said, what exactly is it you're looking for? And she said, well, we had to look at these books. And I said, are books not allowed in America anymore? And she said, well, books look just like bombs. <laughs> OK. So sometimes saying no can be difficult. But saying no is also a skill. And as a skill, it has to be practiced. In order to be vigorous, it must be practiced. And because saying no is so crucial to establishing the boundaries of ourselves, maintaining the integrity of our moral agency, it's especially important to remind ourselves and others that we do in fact possess this skill, that we should exercise it liberally. Thus, the proper response to bullies or others attempting to intimidate us is often, not always, but is often not to call on someone else to intervene. It is instead simply to say in an unequivocal and decisive way, no. No, you may not do that. No, I will not go with you. No, I will not answer your questions. Few acts more clearly and beautifully demonstrate the power of human moral agency than standing up and saying no. So to our actual and would-be czars, I would say this. Not even God believed that he should re restrict mankind's ability to choose only the right. When God created man, gave man free choice, which necessarily entailed the ability to choose the wrong. Well, if it was good enough for God, it's good enough for you, Cass Sunstein and Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> Now, that doesn't mean you can never help another person, but it does mean that you must respect others' agency when you undertake to do so. If they decide not to do what you want, what the, you want them to do, if they resist your impositions and your nudges, if they behave in the gloriously unpredictable way that free people do, you must respect them. They have the right to say no to you. And as we should all know by now, no means no. If you believe they're making a mistake, and even if they are in fact making a mistake, they deserve the respect to decide on their own anyway. So let me come to my conclusion. For my part, speaking for myself, I believe that liberty is too important to our moral agency and to our moral dignity for me not to try to figure out how I might personally contribute in however small a way I can to its unfolding moral arc. I take that as a personal moral duty, which I accept solemnly. If you are inclined to, to agree, what would be the best way for you not only to remember people like Socrates or Cato or Lilburn, but to honor their legacy? Well, by doing the same yourself. I would exhort you then, each of you, to look at the opportunities available to you and to seek out ways that you too might contribute in your own unique but indispensable way to the protection, preservation, and extension of the moral beauty of liberty. Perhaps this will entail your exercising your own power of saying no. Perhaps, like me, you'll decide to prosecute your own campaign of what I call guerrilla liberty. Uh, that's finding entrepreneurial and opportunistic ways to deny and even subvert the assumed authority of those who presume to superintend us. I'm not going to tell you any more about my guerrilla liberty campaign. Um, not only because the NSA and, I don't know, Uncoke My Campus are probably listening. I'm sure they are. Um, but as a student of Adam Smith and Friedrich Hayek, I believe in the power of decentralized, spontaneous order and division of labor. 
So I cannot know how you should expend your efforts. Maybe you yourself don't know yet. But I do know that your and my, our time on Earth is absolutely limited. And the threats to liberty are real and advancing. So let's get started right now and put every remaining minute we have to good use. Like all beautiful things, liberty is fragile. And a free society is rare indeed. They require continuous maintenance by those who appreciate their blessings. When they are threatened, however, as they are now, they require all hands on deck. That means me, that means you. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we might not be successful. The forces that conspire against liberty are multiple and relentless. And I know that many in this room can personally attest that fighting for liberty carries risks. There are a lot of morally beautiful people in this room. Aren't there? Rita? <laughs> but moral duty requires us to fight nonetheless. So ladies and gentlemen, there is a lot of ugliness in this world. And there's nothing uglier than coercion and paternalism. But we stand to gain then, not only for ourselves, but for all the other equal moral agents, including future souls on whom peaceful and prosperous civilizations will depend, is the priceless gift that people like Socrates and Cato and John Lilburn, and so many others have spent their lives nurturing and protecting the exquisitely beautiful and precious treasure of freedom. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Rights precede government. That's the core of the American founding, and George F. Will argues that it is worth preserving. For the Cato Daily Podcast in July, I spoke with Will about his new book, The Conservative Sensibility. This is a portion of our conversation. There is an intellectual shift, it seems. I'm not really on the inside of it, but among many uh, writers who call themselves conservatives, uh, have rejected a lot of things that seem to be core elements of liberalism. That's tolerance um, and freedom to trade and uh, the idea that uh, nationalism is something that ought to be rejected. They're uh, reversing that and, and sort of backing a form of nationalism. Uh, how do you evaluate that in light of what seems to be a fairly classical liberal take on uh, what conservatism ought to look like? Well, let's begin with terminological fastidiousness here. Uh, American liberals, when they became progressives but kept calling themselves liberals, did so much damage to the word liberal that they quite prudently abandoned it and now call themselves uh, uh, progressives. And conservatives have been reluctant to say what I say quite explicitly in my book, that we conservatives are the legatees of classical liberalism, the phrase you just used. The adjective classical does a lot of work there. It says this is not the liberalism of the unbounded state, of the belief in progress, of the questioning of human nature, and all of that. Rather, uh, the liberalism we're talking about is the reverse. It is grounded in an unchanging view of human nature. It is grounded in a confidence in the existence of natural rights. It is grounded, therefore, in resistance to hierarchies and authorities 
and institutions, political, ecclesiastical, all the rest, that are impediments to the flourishing of individuals with natural rights. We are, uh, as conservatives, legatees of that liberalism, which has become itself an orphan in a, in a chilly world. When the French want to denounce someone like Margaret Thatcher, they say, eek, Margaret Thatcher was a neoliberal. Well, I plead guilty. I'm glad to be in the dock with Margaret Thatcher. I should say, by the way, in that regard, Margaret Thatcher loved our countries almost as much as she loved her own, said European nations were made by history. The United States was made by philosophy. And it is the philosophy of John Locke and all the others that produced the classic liberal tradition. So when you say that the, the tide is very much running in the wrong direction in the United States, it seems that there are a particularly uh, authoritarian, uh, I want to call them people, not necessarily groups, but uh, an authoritarian impulse that exists on both the left and right. And my deepest concern is they're going to find uh, someone that they agree on. Yes, they'll make common ground and we'll have that shimmering aspiration bipartisanship, which is always dangerous because uh, when you have a majority complacent in its intellectual arrogance, you're in deep trouble. Are there structural changes that, that have occurred in the United States over time that you think have given rise to uh, maybe a weakening of the the rest of the Constitution itself? Sure. The, the, the fundamental one is the abandonment of the assurance that James Madison expressed. Again, I think it was Federalist 45 when they were advocating for New York to ratify the Constitution. The Madisonian confidence that the powers vested in the government by this Constitution are few and defined. No one any longer can believe not after the 1960s when it finally died, can believe in the doctrine that we are a government of limited, delegated, and enumerated powers. Therefore, we cannot hope for very much uh, help from the judiciary in pol policing the borders of the government. Uh, the only hope is public opinion. Now, that's fine. We have to recognize that and then rally around places like Cato which exist to shift the shiftable sand of public opinion. What makes you most hopeful uh, going forward? Uh, you know, we've talked about the tide running the wrong direction in terms of uh, support for liberty, broadly speaking, and in in every particular way. Um, and we we see candidates who are openly promising things that would have easily been rejected by a massive. Uh, uh, fraction of the country. And may still be. And may still be. But even just a short time ago, a, a lot of these ideas been, are you're, laughable. You're right. They wouldn't have been uttered in public. So what makes you hopeful? You're, you're determined to tickle hopefulness out of me. And I, so I'll cooperate to this extent. Uh, I'm hopeful because the ideas that uh, you and I share and that I'm advocating in the conservative sensibility, the ideas are true. I mean, that's not a small thing. Uh, that is true in the sense that, A, they accord with human nature. B, they're ratified by history. C, we see them at work in the United States, which is on balance an enormous success. There is, uh, it appears, you know, some inevitability 
in the progress of all this freedom and all these wants being satisfied. Um, as Schumpeter would have said, that capitalism makes us flabby and therefore uh, maybe this convenience that we've become accustomed to in our private sector lives is something that we are just mentally tr can transport to government and say, government, please do all of these things uh, for us. What do you think of that? A couple decades after Schumpeter issued his prescient warning, uh, Daniel Bell, a man of the left and a brilliant sociologist at Harvard, wrote a book called The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, which are as follows. Capitalism works, and that's its undoing. That is, capitalism produces luxury. Luxury induces indolence. Uh, luxury, indolence, sloth, and aversion to risk. All of this undermines the moral and social prerequisites of capitalism, which are thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification, a willingness to, to envision a better future, which means a willingness to not be too contented with where you are. So this is an old theme in, in the history of thinking about capitalism, that it undermines its moral prerequisites. The good thing is that Americans at least, and I think human pe beings generally, uh, are wholesomely resistant to satiation. They're never going to be quite happy. Case in point, uh, millions, billions of people had cell phones in 2007 and liked them, were happy with them. Then in 2008, the smartphone came along. And suddenly, billions of people were dissatisfied with their cell phones. And now we have, uh, what, two, three billion smartphones in pockets from sub-Saharan Africa to the uh, Arctic Circle. And somewhere along the line, something else is going to come along that's going to make us say, good grief, how did we ever put up with that smartphone? So uh, creative destruction is alive and well, and that's a good thing. When it was first released in 2013, Arnold Kling's The Three Languages of Politics was a prescient exploration of political communication detailing the three tribal coalitions that make up America's political landscape. The new third edition delivers commentary on political psychology and communication during the Trump presidency. If you want to see through some of your own political blinders, pick up your copy of The Three Languages of Politics at online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.